Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Wednesday, November 1st, and I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming at the City Club of Cleveland and moderator for today's forum. We are at the Happy Dog in Gordon Square for the City Club's monthly Takes On series, and tonight we are taking on Cleveland's lakefront development. If the long line stretching down the shoreway to enter Edgewater Park on summer weekends is any indication, Cleveland is in dire need of more public lakefront space. There have been great strides at Edgewater, as mentioned, Euclid and other areas, but access to Lake Erie from downtown Cleveland remains constrained. Recently, Cleveland's North Coast, the city and its partners announced a draft of Cleveland's North Coast Master Plan. It aims to end what seems like an elusive solution to the lakefront. Development, or lakefront development, creating a blueprint for a vibrant and equitable recreational hub for all to enjoy. It aims to connect people with nature and the city to its waterfront. But what makes this one different from all of the rest? Joining me here at the Happy Dog to discuss these plans is Mordecai Cargill, co-founder and partner of Third Space Action Lab and Third Space Cafe. <laughs> Allison Lucchese Love, Manager Director of Major Projects at Greater Cleveland Partnership. And Joyce Wong, Director of City Planning at the City of Cleveland. A round of applause for our panelists today. If you have a question for our panelists, you can ask that in the second half of this forum. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And uh, our team over here at the City Club will uh, try to work that into the program. Please join me in welcoming everyone here at the Happy Dog. So. I want to start with kind of like a little level setting here. Um, looking back at the history of these ambitious lakefront plans, I think the first one where we were trying to get city access to Lake Erie was in 1903. Um, there have been dozens of plans since then. Can you take us from that start and like walk us through where we are today? I'm going to start with you, Joyce. Sure thing. So in 1903, that was the first official plan, so to speak, that was by Daniel Burnham. So he's the famous architect who planned the Washington DC malls. And so similarly, there's the malls that were planned in Cleveland and yet were never completed. So those plans always called for a connection across from um, the downtown mall area to the lakefront. Um, but I think it's worth mentioning that um, even before then, you know, there were many communities that lived on the lakefront before there were these professional plans made, and that the lakefront actually existed. Um, uh, there, there were some natural bluffs that actually existed um, where Malsi ended, you would actually be at the lakefront. Um, so since then, there have been 17 official plans, um, and excuse me, this is, there's this been is 16, <laughs> this is the 17th, um, and I, I think it's a fair question to ask, you know, when, when will the planning end and when will the lakefront happen? And can you um, maybe give us a quick rundown of, you know, why now and why this plan? Sure, so speaking from the city side, Mayor Bibb specifically has a vision for the lakefront. It's one of his top priorities. And we draw a lot of his vision and his belief in the lakefront. And it really comes down to this vision that our waterfronts have great potential but they've also been historically symbols of division. So if you think about the riverfront, people talk about the riverfront as east dividing west, west dividing east. 
It's a symbol of racial division in our city, of um, perhaps even income. And so, you know, a lot of that is kind of shaping the narrative and saying, can we change the narrative so that our waterfronts are actually places where people are coming together and that there are places of healing, you know, both so, you know, socially, but also for you as, as you know, spiritually or, or even physically, um, can it be a place of healing? So, so the city itself really believes that now's the time and uh, it's, it's time to do it in a way that really is shaped by the community and by your history. Yeah, and let's talk about Shaped by the Community, because I think that's something that really sets this plan apart from many other iterations we've had in the past, um, specifically bringing in third space. So Mordecai over here, um, you guys are amazing, a major powerhouse in this type of work. Um, Mordecai, can you talk specifically about the, pro the approach that third space is bringing to this project, um, specifically with the communities that you all serve? Sure, sure. Well, uh, I'm so glad to be on this uh, panel with, with two of my my friends, honestly, and I, I had to start there because um, our involvement in this project really builds on the work that was that precedes our our introduction in early April. Um, so what we were given, which is an invitation, was for us to kind of complement the tactical, the broad. Uh, traditional engagement methods that were led by Murphy Epson and Compass Consulting uh, to try to make the, allow for the conversation to go deeper. Um, perhaps I should, start, should take a quick step back. I'm a Clevelander uh, through and through. I was born and raised in Cleveland. I went away to college and I came back. And uh, even though there are 16 previous plans and this is number 17, because I'm a Clevelander, and a lifelong Browns fan. I always believe that next year is our is our time, right? <laughs> so, so really, number seventeen is the lucky one. Um, but what what we wanted to do was we wanted to create space for us to talk about what's really important. And so uh, there are some conversations that don't fit neatly into um, the space of a focus group or uh, the the limited character count that's in a, an online survey. We wanted to allow for these big ideas to collide. Like how do you create a public place that will have some development priorities attached to this project? How do you create a, a, a public and private place that is accessible to people? How do we think about a history of the lakefront that precedes Moses Cleveland's arrival in Northeast Ohio? How do we think about what it would look like or what it would feel like rather for the lake, Lake Erie, to actually be a front porch. You know, these are some ideas that we were just provoking in these conversations. And so um, instead of doing a focus group, we decided to experiment with multiple ways of, of engaging people. We created a, a salon concept, which is really trying to prioritize the conversation and allow for it to go where it needs to go. And what we've done, and um, I'm not sure that I'll be able to fully cover all of the ideas and the insights that came up within that space. What we've tried to do is capture the impressions and depend on our comrades on the project team to interpret them. Uh, but not to interpret them in a vacuum, but to actually be a part of an ongoing conversation that is not bound by time and space. So who are some of the groups that you've engaged so far? So uh, we actually, 
it, it's, it, it's an interesting question because um, one, in the salons, we did three sessions. So the first session was about the whole history. Uh, the second session was about the front porch, this notion of a front porch. Um, and the third session was about the lakefront for all. So in our whole history conversation, um, we had the incredible pleasure of talking to uh, one of your homies, uh, Robbie from LENAC. Yep. Um, and honestly, Robbie's contribution to that conversation really changed the focus. And, uh, and uh, it was always intended to be iterative and emergent, but we had to really focus on understanding the indigenous history and presence yeah. in Northeast Ohio. Like it was really hard for us to move past that because one of the things that I'm just gonna be honest with this crowd of my new uh, family here, um, we, I didn't even think about the native population as being present in Cleveland today. It's, it really feels like something that we read about in the history books. It's a, it's a reason for us to um, have a heated civic discourse about how to represent a people, or rather how you shouldn't represent a people um, in the form of a mascot. And really this conversation was trying to uh, push our thinking to think about a more collaborative approach to all planning processes. So that was a long way of saying that there were at least 17 organizations that were represented, and many of the people who represent these organizations came back to multiple salon sessions. Yeah, that's that's really incredible. And I know, you know, speaking with you all, a part of the, you know, I'm also part of the indigenous community, and I can say for certain that was probably one of the first times our community has been engaged formally by the city. Um, and that was a very powerful moment, I think, for our community. Uh, are you seeing kind of similar powerful moments like that um, with other communities in Northeast Ohio, or in Cleveland, rather? I mean, maybe Allie. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that Cleveland has a history, not just on the lakefront, but in other planning processes, of planning for community and not with community. And there's a real intention here to not create transactions in, again, a more typical way of engaging community around capital infrastructure projects, which is which is what this is. And we brought some examples to, to sort of highlight that. There's there's two projects right now. One is a the what we call the connector, which is a heavy infrastructure project, seeing if we can physically tear down the highway, uh, the, the shoreway, and replace it with a local road that opens up economic development opportunity, but also provides multimodal access and claims a lot of land for new park space. Um, but that's just a component of how we get to a place. If we don't demonstrate a value proposition for people to actually go there, um, go there to the lakefront, then we've built maybe a great new road, but it, it goes nowhere. Um, so the master plan is really where there is so much intentionality around designing places for people with people, um, which you know sounds really simple, um, but is, is complex in order to reach a population that is truly representative of the city of Cleveland. And there's a number of different um, initiatives happening right now. Um, Cynthia was referencing her um, participation in the Pachachka night that we had uh, less than two weeks ago at the Rock Hall where we were able to surface just five, right? So we know that, sh again, just touching the tip of the iceberg here in the cultural narratives that exist out there and 
We want your stories too. That's part of our continuous outreach. Um, but it's it's truly our a desire and I think the ethos of the entire team to ensure that we are capturing the input of the community and in a contiguous and continuous fashion so that we're co-creating this for ourselves because what we have seen in Cleveland and the reason there are 16 plans with some iterative successes but not full out completion of those plans is because there hasn't been community buy-in. It's been a top-down process. And we're really trying to rewrite the history of that by surfacing the histories that are often untold. Yeah, Mordecai, you'd mentioned front porch. Mm -hmm. And I, I really want to give you the opportunity to kind of unpack that. Like, that is exciting. Uh, it sounds like giving uh, like Larchmere, you know? It's something mm -hmm. that a lot of community yeah. members go to. It's a very kind of cornerstone uh, you know, day for the east side. Talk a little bit about the front porch and where that inspiration came sure, from. Sure, sure. Well, uh, the the front porch is at once it's a, a design typology. So, like there, in the in the plans, you will see these structures um, that vary in form and uh, complexity. They have different uh, kind of identities, so to speak, um, that are really used as a way of vision visually representing the soul and the spirit of what the lake is supposed to be, or what it's, what it's becoming. But when we were having conversations about the front porch, we were really extending that metaphor and trying to uh, deal with some of the tensions between public and private space. Mm -hmm. So a uh, front porch is like the closest that you can be to the activity that's happening on the street, right? But still be far enough away where it feels private, feels like you're secure, feels like, you know, this is a place that is all is, is your own, you know. But when we think about how to negotiate some of those tensions in the public realm, we know that, that there are certain considerations that um, a municipality can make or the people who are going to be ultimately responsible for determining how, uh, how much money is spent on maintenance, right? But then there's things that we negotiate as neighbors around access to these amenities. So just imagine uh, going to Edgewater uh, for a, a, a cookout, right? You might have to get there at the crack of dawn to make sure that you have uh, a pavilion or a lunch table that nobody else is going to claim your grill, to claim your grill <laughs> right? right? So get like if we were to think about what it would look like to negotiate some of these tensions and really aspire to be better neighbors, we were considering, and I can't take credit for this, this is an idea that actually came from uh, Field Ops or the team at Field Ops, Lisa and Cricket, their early observations coming to Cleveland. Mm -hmm. um, and they're like, okay, we keep hearing about the Cleveland's front porch culture. Like, what would it look like for us to try to design that into the footprint of this uh, downtown lakefront connection? Yeah, and if I could add to that, Cynthia, because uh, Mordecai is completely right. This Again, this idea of co-creating. Um, there is such a unique front porch culture, which is indicative of the Larchmere Porch Fest, right? A very homegrown event. But also for the architecture buffs out there, right? Cleveland has this vernacular of a Cleveland double, which is an upper and lower porch, right? Two families living mm -hmm. in one. And there is just this strong attachment um, to that type of style that is very uniquely Cleveland. And as we were designing values with the community for this project, that became a really strong indicator where people wanted to go. They wanted to create a place 
on our lakefront that was uniquely Cleveland. That wasn't borrowing from Baltimore like we did in the late 80s. That wasn't borrowing from Chicago like we did in the late 1890s to create the 1903 group plan. Something that was uniquely Cleveland. And I think this porch idea is just so salient because it's tangible. We have people in our community that have not had experiences on the lakefront. They've had experiences in community um, of, of sitting on a porch or something of the like. And mm -hmm. so that's, I think, also a nice equalizer and an opportunity to enter into the conversation. Yeah. Um, so thinking about pedestrians, right, getting to the lakefront. I know pedestrian flows has always been a very hard challenge, mm -hmm. um, getting from the mall to the lake. Uh, you know, we have the shoreway right there. And even the, the West Shoreway, just you know, north of us here from the Happy Dog, th the first plans did have pedestrian crosswalks, but they were scrapped quite quickly um, due to some complaints from suburban commuters. <laughs> so we, do, we no longer have those, those crosswalks on the West Shoreway. Um, what solutions have you considered uh, regarding uh, the Shoreway, getting that pedestrian flow to the park and really linking these two kind of amazing green spaces together? That's, yeah, we'll, we'll start with Joyce. So Joyce. I can jump in and talk a little bit about the proposed boulevard. So again, the idea is that we have this very, very heavy infrastructure that divides our original bluff, our original lakefront, um, from the, the lake, which has been built out over time. So there's a lot of you know land that's been extended into the lake. And we have heavy rail, which was identified in 1850, and we have this highway condition. And if you can think about a highway condition, there's you know, 55 miles per hour at least, and there's no crosswalks, you can't have addresses, quote unquote, on the highway, right? You, you know, you could have a building next to the highway, but you can't have actually have like a front sidewalk onto, onto the road. And so the idea is if we were to downgrade the shoreway, remove the shoreway into a boulevard, we could then create an extension of our urban fabric, so our urban streetways. So think about four-way intersections, think about, you know, cozy corners, you know, you have corners where you have buildings or other infrastructure around to help you feel like you're in an urban place and not just floating out there. Um, and we're trying to be very intentional about this. So we, we've learned a lot from the West Doorway. We've learned that even though it's signed as 35 miles per hour, it's designed for 55 <laughs> miles per hour. And we're really trying to change that. And even if it means that there's going to be a little bit longer of a commute, we think that this is a reasonable way to, to, to both have the accessibility um, because the current traffic counts don't need a, hi a highway condition, but it's also a way to say, hey, what we're doing is we're really prioritizing. There's going to be a trade-off. The trade-off is we can't get there as fast, but the positive trade-off is that we can access the lakefront in a safe way that from age 8 to 80, we can feel like we can get there. I think the current plan has the, the land bridge right now. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. So in addition to the intersections I was speaking about on the boulevard, um, we're really aiming for this pedestrian land bridge that would cross over from Malsi. So if you're kind of in your mind's eye in downtown, um, you know, thinking about getting to the lakefront, you're looking out into the lake and you see the stadium and you see the Great Lakes Science Center and you see the Rock Hall in front of you, but you're at the edge of Malsi. Well, you look down and there's a, a farm, which is pretty cool. Um, but you can't actually get across. So the idea is by building this pedestrian bridge, um, which would accommodate bikes as well, um, no cars, mm -hmm. five minute walk to the lakefront versus walking 20 minutes 
around to the lakefront. And this type of access is gonna be critical to really unlock the, the potential of the lakefront, which right now is a bunch of parking lots. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that helps to picture the land bridge, um, that, that yeah. connection. Yeah. Was there some inspiration from maybe like the High Line in New York City? Were you kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit? A little bit. I mean, the, the High Line designers, field operations, is also the designer for this particular plan. So they really wanted to capture a dyna dynamic land bridge. So you'll notice that the land bridge is curved. And we haven't ever seen a design like that in the history of, of the lakefront plan. Um, and I, I, I do want to pause because I want to mention a few things that, you know, field operations with the partner, Lisa Switkin, um, she is of the same ethos as our whole team. So she's thinking about the whole history. She's thinking about design with community. She asks really good questions. So she's not here as a hired hand to just do things. Like she's really asking those challenging questions all along to say, how are we including these whole histories? How are we really capturing a beautiful design that captures the pathways of the native trails, the trading trails, the you know, the Underground Railroad um, of Green Book Cleveland. She's integrating all this in. Um, the second thing I'll mention um, is, is that it's a woman-led team for the most part. And she is a mom, I'm a mom. Like we are thinking about how do we create this age eight to 80 experience. Um, and, and she is the, the mind behind the High Line. So converting this former rail line in New York yeah. City into this massively popular park um, and there are elements that are reflective of it, but coming back to what's special about this particular one, you know, you could probably imagine walking for five minutes on a straight, wide bridge, mm -hmm. but what she saw in our lakefront was this really amazing dynamic opportunity that if you're walking along this curved bridge, your view changes every step that you take. Mm -hmm. So instead of it feeling like a very long five-minute walk across another mall, <laughs> in downtown Cleveland, you're really trying to embrace the different views of the lake and of the institutions and the park and the other people. And it lands on the lakefront with a full view of the sunset. And one of the interesting things that came out of our process is we learned um, because we face the north, on Lake Erie, you can see both the sunset and the sunrise, which is like a beautiful idea, right? And so this, this land bridge is meant to sort of take you to that place. So we get to the lake, right? We, we take the land bridge, we have one of the crosses, we get to the lake. Um, what can we expect once we arrive? And paint the picture for us, Allie. Absolutely. Well, and the, for those of you here at the Happy Dog, you have the benefit of some exhibits. Um, for those of you listening, you can go to clevelandnorthcoast.com. That's our project website that we've set up. Um, and the, uh, the most recent plans, which we're calling the Draft Master Plan, um, are accessible on the website. You can see all of the, the really amazing renders. Um, but the master plan area has a uh, total area of about 300 acres, which is really quite broad. The foci of that is the 22 acres behind the Cleveland Brown Stadium and the Great Lakes Science Center, and uh, the equivalency of Edgewater Beach from the pier to the Cleveland Script sign, pretty much the entirety of um, Edgewater Park. I think I said Edgewater, I meant Euclid Beach and Edgewater Park, uh, approximately the, the same size of that. So a really large area where pretty much all of the amenities and experiences that people have told us that they want. Um, again, we've been out in the community since early May collecting this feedback. 
um, we can fit in this area. We have land. We have today 22 acres of asphalt parking lot. Um, mm -hmm. But I think what's really special about this plan is that people have asked for splash pads and sand beaches. People overwhelmingly, every age group, every race group, every cultural group that we have talked to has asked for lakefront dining. We know that we need more, 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 more of that in the city. Mm -hmm. But lakefront dining, sand beaches, splash pads, roller skating, ice skating rinks, all of that playgrounds, people ask for that and we can provide those experiences and those amenities. But what they're asking for also is a place that brings them joy, which is not something that we collectively all can find on our lakefront, right? And so that really goes back to what Joyce was talking about. Um, the mayor's big vision here around healing is that we have to recognize that there are not only these physical divides, but purposeful social and cultural exclusionary practices that's part of surfacing that whole history. And in order to um, really, truly build a place for all Clevelanders, we need to connect with Clevelanders to understand at a, at a very basic level the desire. And it's, it's to be near a restorative place that is the lake. And I just think that element of joy is something in, in planning that doesn't get talked about enough, but really that's, that's what we're all looking for is, is a way to um, sort of feel contentment, happiness, belonging, um, well-being, and that is, uh, I think, also fundamentally different in this plan in than previous In the summer and ones. the winter, right? In the summer <laughs> and the winter, yes. Yeah. So ice skating rinks, all of that, um, fire pits, and again, for the benefit of those in the room, yep. um, you can see those illustrations. Joyce, yeah, go ahead. Something. And thanks, Allison. And I, I think, you know, broadly speaking, if we're, as we're looking at those 22 acres, you know, the question around development always arises. What's the right level of development? So I'm talking about real estate development. Um, and what's the right level of sort of just public park, public access? And one thing that is different about this plan is that, you know, we're not aiming to blast the lakefront with development in, you know, in that particular area. Um, first of all, I don't, I don't know if, you know, the lakefront if we're really thinking of Lake Erie as a stakeholder, right, we should kind of allow that space for Lake Erie to exist ecologically and, and create the space for that. But also from a market perspective, we think that we are hitting the right absorption. Um, and so the footprint that we're really holding the line on in this situation is 25% real estate development, 75% park, which is quite a balance, right? It is primarily, majority, public access. And people have shared all across the city, you know, wanting affordability, wanting accessibility, and um, their words are pushing us to really prove that this public access public park is going, should be that way, right? And so uh, I'll, I'll just leave That's it at that. That's a perfect lead-in, though, to my next question, actually, because I'm sure you're hearing a lot of, like, through all the engagement, Mordecai, that Third Space is doing, and, and the surveying, and, you know, all the, 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 the salons you've had. A lot of um, wants and needs and desires, and I think we all have our vision of what we think the lakefront should be. Um, as, as you kind of sort through this feedback you're receiving, how do you prioritize? What, what should take, you know, we hear 25, you know, 75, you know, what, what kind of values are driving the prioritization of, of the work that you're doing right now? Mm. Well, fortunately for me, uh, I don't have to prioritize. Uh, <laughs> and I'm gonna be frank, and I have to, I have to say that pretty explicitly. Our, our role is, is to extend the conversation, and our, our role is to continue to bring people into that visionary space. 
And so, uh, frankly, some of our conversations started with like, what do you, what do you want to see on the lakefront? And people are like, uh, a really big Ferris wheel, as, as, <laughs> as one example. You know, uh, other people are like, actually bring back Captain Frank's. Like, uh, we heard that as, as recently as, as this morning. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, I would say that um, one of the benefits of our approach, this experimental approach to uh, constant community engagement, um, and we actually mean that, like constant community engagement, um, is that we've established some trust with some of the key audiences. So people are coming back to the salon sessions, people are coming back to the intergenerational lunch uh, that happened as recently as last Friday, and they're expecting to hear more. Mm -hmm, yeah. And they're also understanding of if their idea doesn't make it into the next set of drawings, because they know that they were heard, they know that they have access to the planning director and the planning director's team, mm -hmm. they believe in what we're attempting to do, and the excitement's only going up. So um, I completely tried to sidestep the question about <laughs> prioritization. I'm going to pass it over to my comrades for <laughs> that part. Yeah, I don't know, uh, Allie, if you wanted to talk about well, maybe that. Well, sure. Well, and, and, you know, also in Mayor Bibb's statement around healing, there are these principles that he laid out around racial equity and economic opportunity, which means that we don't just create real estate plays, that we actually think about how to create wealth for Clevelanders. That's making sure that local businesses are included, minority and women-owned businesses, and how to operationalize that um, certainly is the task of, uh, of, of all of us right but a development authority that's recently formed that will really be taking up that baton um, and climate resiliency is a part of that as well but also social belonging and welcoming and I think that all of those things combined you know may feel somewhat abstract but when we're talking to the community I mean we've been able to distill these down into values of wanting to be around nature um, wanting to be connected to the lake, whether that means from a recreation <coughs> perspective or just opportunities to sit, maybe in one of these porches, right? Everyone's looking for something a little bit different, but again, fortunately, we have this space of 22 plus acres um, where all of that, I believe, really can be accomplished. And um, I think it's just, it's it's truly exciting that we're able um, to, to take those values and morph them into the amenities and the experiences that people are specifically asking for. But again, I think really undergirding this whole idea of um, being in, in some way the sort of storytelling and, and capturing of those collective histories as being a cathartic and healing process in and of itself, which can only lead to um, you know, really a better lakefront for all of us. And we're going to get to audience Q&A here uh, in just a couple questions, but there's one quick one that I had for you, and there was a recent article that I read, and it talked about the reveal of the lakefront development plans, and then immediately after that talked about removing like portions of tailgating for Browns games, <laughs> and like panic ensued. Um, can we talk about the game day experience briefly? Like, what can we expect for that? Because uh, you know, I, I feel like maybe something was a little lost in translation okay. there. <laughs> yes, that that was the big headline, which we we're hoping not to have, but that's okay. Thank you, Steve. Um, so um, we love Steve. Um, so I well, try not to put him on blast. I know. <laughs> uh, um, well, no. The I mean, Browns. The Browns tailgating is a part of a Cleveland tradition. If we're talking about the whole history, and I, I appreciate Mordecai's perspective because it is part of the whole history of the lakefront. We can't ignore it. 
And it's a place where Clevelanders do come together that was illuminated to me by a community member mm -hmm. who um, was, I think, in Glenville last week and saying how, well, sports is one of the ways that people are in the same space together. So, um, you know, the, 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 the idea is that can there be new traditions created for Clevelanders? Can there be uh, this new processional that's across the pedestrian bridge, mm -hmm. if you can imagine fans like packed across the bridge, Maybe fans go out into the lakefront, um, public access area afterwards, public park, um, visit the, s the small businesses, the vendors that have been curated uh, that represent black and brown communities and businesses. Um, and there will still be space for tailgating. I mean, this is a, a far off vision. Um, you know, it could be 20 or 30 years from now before the muni lots begin to see some footprint of real estate development, but they're so massive that there's going to be opportunities for tailgating to continue far into the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, but coming back to the point, it's you know how do we create some new traditions? So how can people find new ways along the boulevard or along the, the, the road around um, the stadium to create that space? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you mm -hmm. want to add anything to that. Okay. Yeah, well, um, this, is, this is a very subtle addition. Um, I'm I'm thinking back to uh, a couple of um, project team meetings, and so we we meet weekly or biweekly. You know, it's it's hard to track time when you're having fun. But anyway, <laughs> um, I remember this conversation distinctly uh, when the the topic was broached of like, uh oh, we got to say something about the muni lot. The project team was like, yo, the people of Cleveland are gonna freak out if there's something that happens to the muni lot. So rather than leave it unacknowledged or unaddressed, the, the, the thought experiment occurred to us. is like, where would the tailgate happen on this new footprint? Like, we should be thinking about that from the outset. Mm -hmm. And so the subtle turn is that if you look at the, at the designs, you, you see a slide of happy Cleveland Browns fans, you know, <laughs> uh, at a tailgate, and they filled up this alleyway, you know? And so really, um, the, the, the whole purpose is like for us to vision forward and for us to think about what is, the, what is the most aspirational, the most inspiring vision for what this lakefront might look like right. that truly represents us as yeah. Clevelanders. Right. And, and Cynthia, and, and I sort of hate to open a can of worms here, but I'm sure it would have come up in Q&A anyway. I mean, the value proposition of the muni lots and so much of that sort of northeastern part of downtown is predicated on what happens with Burke. So if that remains an airport, the value of that land um, as a development site is certainly less. So you know that's also one of the studies that the city of Cleveland is concurrently doing along with the master plan and the connector right now to really ensure that there's a holistic look at our lakefront, which I think, again, like we're, we're stacking up here all the different reasons that now is the time and how it's different than the past, really taking that holistic look and um, at all the different pieces of, of what truly is a, a puzzle in, in multi-dimensions um, is what's gonna make this move this time for the 17th and the last time. Great. So we are about to begin the audience Q&A. Uh, for our live stream audience or those just joining us, I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming at the City Club of Cleveland and moderator for tonight's conversation on Cleveland's lakefront development. Joining me on stage is Mordecai Cargill, co-founder and partner of Third Space Action Lab and Third Space Cafe, Allison Lucchese-Love, Manning Director of Major Projects at Greater Cleveland Partnership, and Joyce Wong, Director of City Planning at the City of Cleveland. 
If you are here with us in person, you can line up next to the microphone to my left to ask your question. A reminder to please keep it short, to the point, and actually a question. Um, we have these amazing postcards right here. If you have some ideas or feedback, uh, definitely scan that with your smartphone's camera and uh, so, you know, fill out that survey and submit your feedback. Um, we do want to make sure we get to as many as possible, though, uh, in the, the limited time we have. If you are joining us via our live stream or perhaps maybe a little microphone shy, uh, you can text your questions again to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and our staff will try to work that into the program. We have our first question, please. Yeah, uh, thank you. Host privilege. I'm asking the first <laughs> question. Um, thank fun. you for doing this. Um, thank you for saying that this is planning with and not planning for. Um, and thank you for the level of community engagement, not just tonight, Pachachka, all of the other ways you're engaging third space. Uh, my question is, I look at these plans and I see small hospitality businesses mm -hmm. that you're planning for. And I see public performance spaces that you're planning for. As somebody who runs one of those businesses and represents uh, the Cleveland Independent Venue Association, mm -hmm. how can we get a seat at the table, not just be engaged with, but engage and be a part of that planning process because we know for a public performance space, there are power needs, there, there are accessibility needs, um, all sorts of mechanical, physical, logistical things, but then also for anticipating these small hospitality businesses. Do you have those small businesses or representatives of those small businesses at the table? Because if those are the people who are gonna be building wealth and community, uh, they know what size space works for them. Uh, and it's not necessarily the size that a developer decides mm -hmm. fits a financing plan. So that's my question. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. All right. So I'll, I'll kick us off. Uh, great question, as always, Sean. Um, so the, the plan is at 60%, so there's still 40% left to go. And I, I do believe we are at a point where, you know, as we're wrapping the plan, getting the plan adopted by the Planning Commission, there is still a design phase that follows. So the design phase kind of gets much more detailed, looks at the utility hookups, looks at the water needs, looks at where everything's gonna actually go, and the opportunity is still live, right? Um, so there's more opportunities to fold in more voices at this point, especially as we head towards design. And um, Sean's point actually has been echoed several times around, well, let's not just make pop-up spaces, but let's actually integrate in electricity hookups into the ground so that you know this is actually like a, a, a live area where you could actually plug in. Um, and uh, I think we're just very sensitive to the fact that you know in order to support small businesses on the lakefront, you, you need that mass of people around. But we also don't want to pull away from other neighborhoods or even you know downtown even. like we need to have spaces that are specific to the lakefront and unique to the lakefront, and it's going to be a challenge. So uh, we invite all of your knowledge because yeah. it's, it's an ideal that we have. Yeah. And, and I can just add a little bit more specificity to that. So 
um, this coming Friday. Uh, one, one, so GCP, the Greater Cleveland Partnership, is the region's chamber of commerce. We have a subsidiary called COZY, the Council of Small Enterprises, and we're having a discussion group with those small not some of those small businesses, there's more than 12,000 of them in the region, um, some of those small businesses to talk just about that, what those needs are, because that value has come across really strongly that we want to support in this project, entrepreneurs, small businesses, local, minority, women-owned, black, brown businesses, how do we actually move that needle? Um, and so that's that's a opportunity, that's a, a touch point. We also have a community benefits working group, which um, Mordecai referenced, uh, met this morning to also talk about how to operationalize and instill those values um, in a real way moving forward into the plan. And I think that working group structure, which has brought in residents from the community, as well as business owners and representatives of nonprofits and civic spaces, um, is only gonna continue, and there's only gonna be an ability to create more and more of those with subject matter specificity as this plan goes from the very early day of a vision framework into, as Joyce said, the additional design phases to come. Next question. My name's John Eckerly, and I really am encouraged by you guys designing structures and places that promote human interactions and place interactions. Mm -hmm. But I see where we've been here before, especially in this neighborhood, where we were very specifically during the period of time where Matt Zone, Chris Renane, I believe, was planning director, where we were promoting a boulevard from here directly to Edgewater. And there was gonna be stoplights, it was gonna be really 35 miles an hour, and I thought it was gonna be 35 miles an hour all, all the way to Dead Man's Curve. But from what I understood, it was the State Department of Transportation that killed that plan. And there was this um, compromise that came out of it, which is what we have right now. What, what can be done to change that situation? I mean, that was <coughs> if it dozens and dozens of community meetings to mm -hmm. try to do that, mm -hmm. and it made infinite sense to all of us. Mm -hmm. um, so if it happens to the lakefront, is that what you're saying? Yep. It, 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 what is going to yeah. change yeah. Yeah. to yeah. be okay. able yeah. to yeah. make that possible? Yes. That is That's the, really important it's a to really be good able question. to connect mm -hmm. the structure, mm -hmm. structurally connect to downtown, and right here to Thanks. the lakefront. Yep. Yeah. Joyce? So I, I, I can address just the portion around the lakefront since we're, we're designing specifically for that area. Um, we hear your concern, and that was our concern as well. And so um, similar to how we've been trying to integrate in community voices along the whole, whole process, 30%, 60%, we also have been continuously engaging with the Ohio Department of Transportation mm -hmm. because, as you mentioned, ultimately they sign off. Um, they also have money in the plan, uh, the, the infrastructure study. So we do connect with them. And so far, you know, we have received positive feedback. So that's the first thing is that continuous communication helps. Um, secondly, the federal government, the, the Department of Transportation and this administration has prioritized many of these types of infrastructure projects that are reconnecting communities, creating better pedestrian access, 
creating better community access. So that's a, that's a, a charge from the DOT itself down to the state level. So we feel a shift in the culture and, and now is kind of that moment. Um, I can't speak necessarily for the West Shoreway, mm -hmm. but I think for this downtown plan, we're, we're really headed in a positive direction with regard to ODOT Great. and our relationship. Thank Wait. you very much. Next question. How long do you think this will take? Oh, <laughs> great question. <laughs> the, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> Looking for the splash or the, pad. <laughs> or the billion-dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how long this will take? So our goal, you know, the, the mayor is very all-in. So again, this is a top priority, and we are coordinating very heavily across our region to say Lakefront's priority of 2024. So our goal is to go after a lot of the federal infrastructure funds this next year, um, after the plans wrap. Um, and we hope to have construction started in the next few years and done in the next 10 years. So that's the goal. And um, we, need that, we need that support to get the, um, the funding going, so. And I'll just add to that to say something that Joyce and her team uh, did uh, very proactively was to secure a million dollars of ARPA funds for what we're calling near-term interventions. And that's going to maintain the momentum, right? So when we said, you know, it's important to keep in contact with the community to continue to build that trust and that relationship building, demonstrating what we can as soon as we can. I mean, there are really simple requests here like different seating options and shade and, and opportunities that we have that we can, with artists in the community, in paint, create next year. And so to keep that momentum, but also to keep the opportunity to keep iterating and, and design through experience and process to make sure that we're getting, again, exactly what is going to work for all Clevelanders. So I think that's a, um, a, a really awesome thing that the city did early on to secure those dollars to make sure that once the plan is over, uh, or the master plan rather, is over, that there is an, a pretty immediate next step. And if I could add to that, you know, that near-term interventions um, fund, I really see that as a place for artists, as place builders, to really step in. Because if we're creating the lakefront, which is right now parking lots and a lot of grayscape, um, if we're wanting to claim that kind of for our communities, um, who else than artists to really be able to represent that and to show and depict even like the, the planners of the process, not, not the city staff, but really the community members who are very involved. And I think this even came up in one of the um, salons around near-term interventions and how we might really activate the space to say this is really a place of belonging for you know, some of the people who feel most disenfranchised or have felt the most disconnected from the lakefront. Mm -hmm. Great, next question. Yes, I, I can appreciate the uh, concern about inclusion, but I'm going to be a little stingy because uh, I live East 185th, but I like having access to being able to go to Edgewater, to be able to shop in Lakewood. I know people like to be able to go to Waterloo and go to beach, Beachland. Mm -hmm. I know people like to be able to play baseball at League Park. Mm -hmm. There's a significant benefit to that stretch. So in this process, what are you going to do to provide an alternative to maintain flow and access to both sides? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. 
Should I take that one? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, go ahead, I'll, I'll take it. Great question, and that is a concern. That is why we're studying these two options. Do we keep the shoreway as is, or do we downgrade, quote unquote, to a boulevard? Um, so I will say that the section we're really looking at is um, does not cut off I-90. So I-90 will continue to exist as is, and in fact, there's plans that ODOT has to, to upgrade I-90 across this whole area downtown stretching up to around 55th Street. So I-90 will continue to exist and I-90 will bring you to Lakewood and to, to the west side. Um, what we're saying is this, I think it's a half mile to a mile stretch, um, will continue to have a road. It will act more like, well, I don't know if this is the greatest example, but the, the more local examples are sort of like Chester Avenue or Carnegie Avenue. It'll act more like those roads where there will still be access, but it won't be as um, intensive as a freeway. So uh, I, will, I will leave it there and see if Allison has anything to add. I, I just want to add that um, it's a little bit of historical context here. In 1936 is when the shoreway was installed, and that predates 90. Um, and at the time, it was designed to be um, a superhighway. That's what the, the planners called it. Um, but it, it was always intention to go underneath of a tunnel or a type of land bridge in the downtown. And of course, we ended up building the superhighway and not the land bridge for the people, um, because that's how we make transportation decisions here in the past. Um, but the other part of this is that uh, the volume of traffic that existed at the time in the 1930s when Cleveland was the sixth largest city in the United States and our uh, forefathers could only anticipate more and more and more growth. Um, they were building infrastructure, and this is all over the city, we all know it, uh, that way exceeds the population in our, in our communities today. We could take every right-of-way curb-to-curb and turn it into a multimodal um, and still have plenty of level of service as, um, as ODOT is interested in. And so I think it's, it's just important to understand that we have infrastructure that is completely overbuilt, is built for um, single occupancy vehicles that, you know, we know this is not an immediate time shift or a mindset shift rather, but as, as Joyce said, you know, this is a 20 or 30 year vision. So the innovation that comes with multimodality in the future, we maybe can't quite grasp yet. Um, and there's also a lot of improvements baked into this plan that I don't think we've talked so much about around uh, rail access with expansion of Amtrak and RTA locally. Um, again, bike, walking, just different ways to access and think about um, the types of ways we want to interact with places, um, but also how we want to value our lakefront. And, and I, I truly believe we don't want it to be a parking lot on, on our greatest natural resource. Mm -hmm. Next question? Hi. Hi. Um, thank you. So I really appreciate the analogy to the New York High Line, and it draws to my mind images of also the Chicago lakefront and my two most recent cities, uh, Baltimore and its Inner Harbor and Harbor East development, and DC with the work that they've done in the wharf and the Naval Yard. But the thing that all of those have in common are relatively dense residential neighborhoods that either existed or were built up around them. How does the expansion of a residential neighborhood factor into this plan? Yeah. Um, Great question. Um, yeah, because we need people in order to really activate the lakefront. And again, that comes down to that balance that we were speaking of, is what's the right amount of people to keep it feeling alive 
you know, like there's people around, but not feel like it's a completely privatized mm -hmm. backyard for somebody, you know. And so, you know, again, we're aiming for that 1,000 to 1,200 unit um, count on the lakefront. Um, and we're really hoping that there will be a lot more residential um, that will begin to kind of gain some momentum on uh, the downtown side. Um, and, you know, again, kind of thinking about the, the 300 acres of study area, um, including the mini lots, but also the whole area just to the south, which is like East 18th Street and, and, and those areas which will then have, have more activation. So I think it's a great question. Uh, I think the hope is that there will be more residents and it'll be an attraction. Um, and yeah. see if you have and, and anything. I'll just say that downtown Cleveland is Cleveland's fastest growing neighborhood from a residential perspective. And Cleveland is the national leader in office to residential conversion. And this was happening well before COVID, but as, as um, even become more popular um, and more frequent uh, since COVID. And so I think we will achieve that density um, within the downtown that is necessary to keep these places active. We already have that density and we already have residents that are you know, asking for, for more than exist. Um, but this is also important to imagine um, and remember as a, as a regional benefit as well. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, Yesterday kicked off Cleveland's longest season of winter. <laughs> and I'm curious how winter has factored into your conversations around planning. I think we have a real opportunity um, to embrace and potentially shift our city's attitude around our longest season. <laughs> and um, although these photos up here are stunning, there's maybe one that has snow in them. So I'm curious how you've addressed our beautiful winter. Thank you. Well, I, I happen to love winter uh, for <laughs> selfish reasons. Like I get to wear like more cool clothes and all that stuff. Um, I, I will uh, just build off of the last question and say that, um, well, one, uh, just residential development downtown is not enough to create the sense of uh, connection to place and belonging. Um, it's necessary but insufficient. You know, that's just where programming comes in. It's like we need to create new and more winter programming to attract people to this footprint. And we don't have to wait 20 years for us to do that. Like we need to start to create that sense of place and connection now. Um, the the other thing is that uh, I'm not sure if you can see it in uh, those designs, but. Um, in the 60% draft, like there are, uh, there's an intentionality around visioning what uh, winter programming might look like. Like not just the activities, but uh, how do you make a front porch actually a warming shelter, you know, for for the types of activities that we need to happen outside. That's that's my uh, okay. quickest and um, hopefully most succinct response. <laughs> what would y'all add? Uh, well, uh, happy to to walk through the 60 slide deck that has <laughs> has a, a, a winter slide for every summer slide. But I think there are some really cool opportunities and you were referencing some creative ideas that we would love to hear from you about. You know, you can write in on the survey or put on the board. But again, converting the, the plaza space, which could be for roller skating, other activities, into a hockey rink. Mm -hmm. That was one of the ideas that came up. Full-size hockey rink, too, Full right? Full-size hockey rink, yes, <laughs> for the Michigan-Ohio State hockey game. <laughs> Um, 
just had to put it out there because I have a Wolverine over here too. Um, But then also the, (laughs) but then also you know uh, the warming huts that um, our designers are really promoting this idea of like a cozy campfire for the Higge uh, experience, and then um, sledding hill, a sledding hill which is in the summertime the ship watching yard, excuse me, ship watching green. So there's there's a lot of you know, other side of the coins to the summer that we're hoping for and uh, uh, hoping Maybe for more ideas. more bright winter festivals yeah. or sure. similar. We yep. got to, you know, winter um, holiday festivals and things like that. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much. We are at time. I want to give another round of applause for our, our panelists here, Mordecai, Joyce, and Allison. Thank you. Forums like this one are made possible thanks to generous support from individuals like you. You can learn more about how to become a guardian of free speech and make a donation today at cityclub.org. Tonight's forum is also part of the City Club in the Community Series, sponsored by Bank of America. And on the topic of our Great Lake, uh, be sure to join the City Club this Friday, November 3rd, for the State of the Great Lakes. Dr. Richard Spinrad, the administrator of NOAA, will be in conversation with Betsy Kling, Chief Meteorologist at WKYC. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. My name is Cynthia Connolly, and our forum is now adjourned. Woo-hoo.